Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you'd open up your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew in the chapter 19. We'll really specifically focus in on verse 24. And one of the hard sayings of Jesus that I actually get confronted with every once in a while because people have some pretty whack doctrine. It's amazing how quickly bad theology can erupt in the mind of the believer. If you don't look at scripture in its totality, you can come up with all kinds of pretty strange things. And there's not one that's much stranger than this one. Jesus makes a statement that to us as we sit here this morning is obviously an impossibility. But is that what Jesus is actually saying? Because here's the problem with this particular bad theology. We're actually going to do really a part two Uh, on this uh, a couple of weeks from now when Jesus makes another statement that's similar. Does Jesus want us all to be poverty-stricken? Is Jesus actually against people having wealth? Is it impossible for rich people to actually enter the kingdom of heaven? I've had people say that. I've actually had people come to me and say, well, you know, if you live on Palos Verdes Peninsula, you're going to hell. Very close to that. may seem strange to some of you, but I've had people say that to me. Well, they live in PV. They can't be of the Lord. Rolling Hills is almost not of the Lord. (laughs) And I'm pretty close. I live in Lamita. That's close to Rolling Hills. And so you're, you're right on the edge, Jeff. Is that what Jesus is actually saying? I don't believe so. But there are a lot of people who have taken vows of poverty because they think God's against riches. And so would you join me? We'll pray. And we'll look at this hard saying, a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Father, we thank you that there actually is an answer to that question, that dilemma. Lord, where we really look at the things we have in life, through your eyes, not through the eyes of the world. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning, encourage us. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here that their life needs a little change in this area. Lord, perhaps they've taken one of these extreme views. And Lord, it's bound them up. It's caused them to be ineffective for your kingdom that you'd set them free. And so Lord, take your word, impart it to our minds and to our hearts that we might live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 20, Matthew 19, as we move ahead a little bit so that we can have the proper setting and context. The young man said to him, what young man? Well, we know that that's actually the rich young ruler. He's a yuppie. He's a dink. Dual income, no kids. He's got some extra bucks. He's got some cash. He's living the high life, if you could do such a thing, uh, in the first century. 
The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And we're going to look at Luke's account to give this some context here in just a moment. And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So it sounds like Jesus is saying, if you really want to be a super disciple, you can't own anything. But when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So for those of you this morning that God is blessed and you have great possessions, I pray that you're going to be set free, that God's perfectly okay with you having those great possessions. And for those of you that don't, that God isn't angry with you and he didn't keep them from you. God looks at possessions much more differently than we do on this earth. What do we do with those great possessions? And then Jesus said to his disciples, notice how he's having a private conversation and he turns to the disciples. The whole time the disciples have been listening. They've they've been watching how Jesus handles this interaction For assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you please circle hard? Underline it, highlight it, put a note in your margin. It says hard. It does not say impossible. It says hard. Difficult. Problematic. Not easy. Many synonyms could be stuck in there. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now immediately, this is where some really poor doctrine erupts in the minds of people who are ill-taught of Scripture. Because at first glance, if Jesus is actually saying a camel through the eye of a needle, that is what we would call impossible. Amen? That would be an impossibility at first glance. You would look at that and go, well, he's not just saying it's hard. It can't happen. There is no way. Sorry, but no. Don't care how small the camel is or how big the needle is. Not happening. And when the disciples heard it, now I want you to notice the disciples were confused as well. They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Who is it that can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things, church. All things are possible in God. Nothing is impossible for God. Some of you are probably taking that first glance look right now and maybe thinking to yourself, wow, maybe I have too much stuff. Some of you may be saying, well, I'm already poor, so I must be okay with God. Because there was a large group of first century Christians who actually thought that. The Stoics and Gnostics 
many of those early groups who wanted to really die to themselves believed that the poorer you were, the closer to God you were. And while there is some merit to discussing that particular application of this verse, is that what Jesus is getting at? Is it that if someone's poor, they're automatically closer to the Lord? If someone's rich, they might not be able to reach God at all? Here's some things for you to remember. How much wealth do you need before you're considered rich? When do you cross that line would be a good question for us to ask this morning. If we're going to take this verse and try and say, well, you know, rich people are, they're, it's over for them. Well, let me give you a little thing for you to chew on. Because you live in the United States of America, because you simply live in the United States of America, based on the overall amount of public assistance that's available in this country, if you didn't have an income and you lived off of public assistance, again, I'm just speaking generally, what's available and how many people can get it, you would automatically be richer than two-thirds of the rest of the world's population. If you just live on public assistance in America, two-thirds of the rest of the world would consider you rich. So is this passage just about America? I don't think so, being as America didn't exist. Is this just about a specific type of wealth? Don't think so, because wealthy people then didn't remotely have what you and I have. So what was Jesus getting to? Turn to Luke chapter 18. You can keep your finger in Matthew's gospel if you like, or you can just simply turn to Luke 18. Companion passage, same event. Verse 18, and I want to read this as a separate story, same event. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? See, there's a little inference here that is very different than the story we have in Matthew's gospel. Remember that we call them synoptic because they are a synopsis of the ministry of Jesus while he was here on this earth. They do not tell the exact same story. They tell the story based on the truth that was heard by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were not the same people. They didn't have the same history. They didn't come from the same background. Each one of them was an individual. And so Luke, being a doctor, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, here it comes. Here's this young man's response. All these things I have kept from my youth. Notice that these are the five of the ten commandments that have to do with relating to other people. Notice what is not in them. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, which is the first commandment. Amen? 
So Jesus doesn't give them all, give him all ten. It only gives him five that relate to how he is in relationship with other people. And there's a secret to this. Because this is you. You will pick and choose when you're talking about your own character. You will pick and choose to talk about the things that you are strong in. But very often you will avoid the things that you are weak in. And so you're proud to say, well, I've never slept with another person's wife, or I've never stolen somebody else's goods, but you do have another God. And his name is Mammon. Money, possessions, or maybe it's power. Maybe it's position. Perhaps it's fame. Maybe it's something in your character that you absolutely have to always be the most intelligent person in the room. There's something about your character that if you were given the Ten Commandments in their totality, you might be okay with five, but you're not going to be okay with the other five. Or maybe you're going to be okay with nine, but not one. You see, the problem is the entrance exam to heaven is absolute perfection and sinlessness. It isn't I'm 90% okay. It's I have to be forgiven of all of my sin. That's the issue for this young man. It's not that I'm morally better than the people that I live with. It's am I perfect? And so notice Jesus' question. Why do you call me good? When he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And then Jesus saw that he'd become very sorrowful and he said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And then Peter said, check this out. Well, that's good because the 12 of us are totally awesome because we gave up everything and followed you. That's the Jeff Gill nearly inspired version. See, we are okay. Isn't that our response as human beings to almost everything in the Bible? We compare ourselves to other people. See, according to other people, the disciples had left everything. But were the disciples actually functionally sinless? The answer is no. They were prideful and arrogant. They bickered. They fought. They decided who wanted to be the greatest. We could just go through the Gospels and go, the disciples were still sinners that needed a Savior. Sometimes the reason that we have poor interpretation of Scripture is for no other reason then we don't like what it says because it points back at us. It questions me. It causes me to see my own life in light of what Jesus is getting at. I want to give you some tools that you can use. Remember, you can download these slides just directly from from our website, so you don't need to write all these things down, but these will help you. How to interpret your Bible D.A. Carson said that when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That's the chief rule that we should use anytime we're looking at our Bibles. If it makes sense, 
don't go looking for something else because it probably means what it says. Now, in this case, we have one of those passages that kind of sort of doesn't seem to make sense. Amen? So we look at it a little differently. And here's some tools. What did the words actually mean? The real definitions. Remember, these words were written 2,000 years ago. They still are alive today. They still have meaning today. The words that were used then meant something to those who heard them. Sometimes we need to look a little farther to find out what they meant to the people that heard them in the first century. We're going to do that this morning with this passage. A second thing. When the Bible was originally written, it had a usage. It was intended to convey some kind of thought. The Holy Spirit was speaking to people just as the Holy Spirit speaks today. But what is it that the Holy Spirit is trying to convey through the usage of this particular word or this particular passage? Because the Bible says what it says. It means what it says. The question often is, what is it trying to convey to me? What's the usage? How do I apply it would be another way to look at it. In the middle of this is context. Whenever you divorce words from their context, they then become a pretext for you to make them say whatever you want them to say. So always keep your Bible verses in their context. Don't pull them out and say, well, Jesus said a rich man can't get into heaven. You see how you could do that with this passage? Pull it right out of its context and go, rich people can't go to heaven. And I've had people say that I've seen bumper stickers with this on it. It's like, well, you know, rich people. Let me say something publicly. Thank God for rich people who love Jesus. Amen. There's an awful lot of stuff that goes around all over the world that are directly the the outcome of someone who has wealth and using it correctly for God's glory. So don't ever get to that place to where all rich people are lumped into one category. A fourth thing, a historical background. Remember, these are first century people. Jesus is speaking to first century people, so there might be something about the conversation had in the first century that may be essential for you to understand what was going on. Number five is unity of Scripture. Jesus never contradicts himself. The Bible never contradicts itself. So if you find a passage that seems to contradict the main teaching of anything else in the Bible, you probably have the wrong interpretation. There will always be unity of Scripture. That's why when you divorce the Bible from love, I can tell you you're wrong. And when you divorce the Bible from truth, I can tell you you're wrong because the Bible plainly says, writing in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul said, speak, therefore, the truth in love. Can't just be truth, can't just be love. Both things have a problem at some point in time. Put them together and you have the right way to deal with the situation. And so here's the problem for us with this passage. A lot of times people look at it and they leave these things out. And furthermore, they don't even employ logic and reason in a way that they would normally employ it in virtually anything else that they would think about. All of a sudden, people become biblical scholars and they find something they like to seize on because it fits their personality or their viewpoint of the world. And all of a sudden, it becomes doctrine. 
I, I can't tell you how many times during this pandemic I've had conversations with people where they would not think the way they think about anything else except when it comes to vaccines or except when it comes to masks or except when it comes to going to church and having to wear a mask, or when it follows the government, they would follow the government everywhere else, but when it comes to this, I'm not doing it. It's like you're being illogical. You're being unreasonable. You're not employing the same logic in all situations. You think that because you don't like it, you get to have another opinion now. The Bible is very clear. You have not been asked to put away your mind. God gave you that mind for a reason, and you are supposed to use it, especially when you're interpreting your Bible. Don't ever put away your brains. If the plain sense doesn't make sense, you might want to look somewhere else. And if it does make sense, don't look any further. So what's the deal with this camels and needles thing? There are all kinds of traditional answers to this particular passage. Now, I'll tell you, when we travel to Israel, we'll normally go to the north side of the old city to the Damascus Gate. The Damascus Gate is next to uh, the Arab Quarter, and it leads into an area that's occupied in Jerusalem, especially East Jerusalem, that is predominantly Arab. The walls on that end of the city come from that Muslim era, but it is amazing to me how many tour guides will take a bunch of us folks who don't know any better and stand us right in front of the Damascus gate, and they'll look at it and go, you know in your Bible when it says the eye of the needle? Well, it's actually this gate within a gate concept. And here's why there's some basic truth to it, because in order to use that eye of the needle gate, in order to have that particular opening available to you, you had to do some pretty serious things. And that was you had to get your camel down on its knees to get through that one. You were not going to get your camel through one that was already gated because that one was locked. When the city was closed at night, the only gate that was open was the eye of the needle. So they developed this thing to tell Christians who were in the Holy Lands, it's like, well, that's what Jesus meant. And while the truth behind it is actually fairly accurate... Because you have to kind of come to Christ on your knees, right? Metaphorically speaking. You can't carry your burdens into the kingdom, metaphorically speaking. You you see, you could kind of make that, and some people say, well, it's just that gate. Is that what Jesus was getting at? Is that what he was saying? Was it this concept of a gate that was very specifically built by the Ottoman Empire. See, they kind of conveniently forget to tell you that that gate was built between the 8th and the 15th century, almost a millennia after Jesus had died and gone to heaven. So pretty sure he wasn't talking about that one. Furthermore, there's almost no historical evidence that anybody ever referred to a gate within a gate as the eye of a needle. They actually called it the small gate. That's odd. That kind of makes sense. The small gate. Gate B. There are lots of ways you could refer to it. Now again, I don't want to take that too far because again, there are some principles there. Those principles are biblical. But the problem is, 
Jesus was speaking very directly to a group of people, and he said something extremely direct to them. And it's recorded by Luke and Matthew. So it must have been important. What was it? Now we go back to words and context and why they matter. You see, if you actually were Jewish at that point in time, you would have understood very clearly that Jesus was referring to a Hebrew idiom. He was speaking very specific about that idiom. Because that idiom is found in the Talmud. It actually was used in common everyday language. And Jesus was Jewish. And in fact, there are all kinds of references to the eye of a needle. And sometimes they even went so far as to say an elephant couldn't pass through it. Also pretty true. Amen? What was Jesus actually getting at? Remember, these words and the context of them does matter. And here's where it gets interesting, because we all think, because here's the way your Bible got interpreted. It was originally written primarily in Hebrew or Aramaic. It was then translated by 70 Greek translators. We call that the Septuagint. It was translated into Greek and from Greek into Latin from Latin into German, and from German into English. So the English Bible that you have, if you happen to have an English Bible, went through multiple language translations, beginning with the original language, which would have, for the most part, been Hebrew. The question becomes, what language did Jesus speak? Well, in Galilee, because Jesus was a Galilean, They didn't actually speak Hebrew per se, they spoke Aramaic. Aramaic is a Paleo-Hebraic language. In other words, it's a very ancient form of Hebrew. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. So when he said this, he didn't all of a sudden break into Greek because no one would have understood a word that he said. He also didn't break into Latin because nobody would have understood a word that he said. He certainly didn't auf Deutsch gesprochen, and he for sure wasn't speaking English. Jesus was speaking Aramaic. And this is where these passages, it's very helpful for you to have some word tools. You can just log on, get yourself Blue Letter Bible, and these things are available to you. You can actually look them up yourself. So what did Jesus say? Well, he didn't use the Greek word, which is chameleon. That always means camel, an actual camel, the ones with humps, the ones that are the ships of the desert. Jesus wouldn't have spoke Greek to a bunch of Jewish men. He was speaking Aramaic. In Aramaic, the word for camel is gamela. The reason this is important is it has two meanings. One is the animal. The second is rope. Very specifically, the rope that is woven from camel's hair. If you've ever touched a camel, they're kind of like a cross between a porcupine and a skunk. Because they smell terrible and their fur is very stiff. 
But their fur is also very durable and very strong, and it sheds consistently while you're traveling through the desert. So one of the things that the average person who was a Bedouin or who traveled through this region who had camels would do is they would save that. They would literally brush down their camel. They could do it with their hand, take that fur, and they would then weave it into a rope. And that rope would be used to repair things like their tents. It wasn't so much used for garments. And so they would keep a needle draped over the neck of their camel which they would consistently, while they're riding, to give them something to do, they could sit and weave that stuff and just spindle it and put it all together and kind of add to that. So when they got to wherever they were going, if they needed to do a quick repair of their tent, there around the neck of their camel would be this oak needle that might be six to eight inches long and some really ugly rope made out of camel's hair. So when Jesus says this, this is something that they would have absolutely known. We're finally getting somewhere. If you look at this in Aramaic, it makes a whole bunch of sense what Jesus is saying. Because you see, it's not impossible for that gamela to make it through the eye of the needle. It's difficult, and in fact, if you don't make sure that you're making exactly the right size piece of rope, it won't go through, but you can make it go through. And here's how you can do that. By simply taking a little bit of what is on that rope off. You can thin it down, you can pare it down, you can make it thinner so it does fit through there. The binding of that hair and the making of it into rope is the picture that Jesus is actually getting at. He's saying, you know like those needles you see around the necks of a camel and the rope that's on there, the eye of that needle, you know how tough it is to actually pass that gamela through that needle? It's not impossible, but you better have the right size rope because there's only one hole. And if you keep burrowing out the hole to make it bigger so more stuff can go through it, it will break the needle, it will become unuseful. Jesus is being very, very, very specific. There was a relationship between the size of the rope and the eye of the needle that couldn't be violated. It had to be in the right proportion, was what Jesus was saying. You had to have the right amount of rope to get through the right size hole. Otherwise, it would become a burden to you. It would cause you to have to work and to slough things off. And in fact, one could even say that the way to get around this particular dilemma was to get rid of some of what you had. To give it away. To pull it off. Maybe lengthen the rope at the other end. Maybe give it to someone else. Pass it along. You see, the words in the context really matter to this particular passage. They're just little things, but they help us avoid seeing things incorrectly. So the question really becomes, what's this going to cost me? Because again, in Aramaic, this rich man, in Aramaic, this atira, this person who has abundance of resources... It is difficult. Why? Because when you're in that position, what are you prone to trust in? You're prone to trust in your stuff. 
It's like, what do I need God for? I have multiple homes. What do I need God for? I have more money than I'll ever need. What do I need God for? I've got five cars. What do I need God for? I already have all that I need. I'm perfectly content right now. And because you're content right now, you're missing the one thing that you really need, which is Jesus. You see, he wasn't saying I'm against riches. He's saying, if there's something that's going to keep you from me, then you have a real problem. And that problem you need to deal with before you leave this earth. What's it going to cost me becomes the thinking. It's very obvious that this young man was actually drawn to Jesus. There was something very attractive about Jesus and the disciples. Now, it wasn't stuff, was it? Jesus himself said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. Jesus was broke, okay? Stone cold broke, poverty stricken, if you want to look at it that way. The disciples walked everywhere. They didn't take public, they didn't fly business class or anything like that, which praise the Lord, if you get to fly business class, you will be forever ruined, okay? Just saying. One of the worst decisions you can ever make is to ever fly business class if you're going someplace like to Europe. Because you actually get to lay down and go to sleep. And you're like, the next time you fly coach, you're like, dear God, I'm never leaving California ever again. (laughs) If I have to fly more than an hour, I'm not doing it. You see, there are a lot of things that happens when you experience wealth. All of a sudden, the whole rest of the world seems like it's a struggle. It's difficult. It's hard. It's like, oh man, I don't know if I can get by without that. And Connie and I lived in Austria. They eat old dairy cows in Austria. Germans are meticulous about taking care of things until they no longer are useful. They're just really good at it. That's why they live in the... uh, You'll have houses that people have lived in, same family, for hundreds of years. Hundreds. You know, in some cases back... Maybe even a thousand years. They treat their cows the same way. And I don't know if you've ever eaten a cow that died of old age. My teeth aren't going to last that long. Okay? Just saying. I, I believe in that hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Okay? It's a dental song. So you're over there, it's like, oh, man. But you know what happens when someone from there comes here and they go to Morton's Steakhouse and get a ribeye? They go back to Austria. I ain't eating that. You see, wealth can do things to your mind. It can cause you to be completely dissatisfied with anything other than the best. All this, and you can see this when you go to buy cars. Who goes to the car lot and says, can you give me the strippy that doesn't run well? <laughs> no. You go into the showroom and there it is, the fully loaded one. That's the one you want. You see, that's what wealth can do to you. 
And Jesus is confronting this issue of lack of contentment in our lives to where we can no longer be content with what he allows. So if we have, we think we're blessed, and if we don't have, we think we're not. And here's the problem with that. That can keep you from heaven. Because if you already think you have all you need, then maybe you will not remember that you need Jesus. And Jesus is simply saying to this young man, you have time to change the way you think. You're rich right now, but I want to warn you, as the dear Apostle Paul will write some 35 years later, as he writes to his understudy, Timothy, in ministry, there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, it says, But to those who desire to be rich, they will fall into temptation and a snare, a trap, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, not money, the love of it, where it becomes your love. The love of money is the root. doesn't say it is evil. It says it's the root. It's what lies under the surface that you can't see because here's what happens. You become discontented and you start to associate having and not having with God's approval. And all of a sudden, if you have, well, God must love me. And if you don't, God doesn't like me. And vice versa. And so as Paul writes to Timothy, he said, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Yep. A lot of people have come to trust in the things they possess. They're unwilling to trim down the cord of their life so that it can pass through the needle that God gave you, which is your life. God knows who you are. He knows what you can handle. He knows how you're going to go through life with the things that you possess. He knows everything about you. He knows why you think what you think. And so he is kind enough to not give you more than you should have And he's also kind enough to not take from you more than needs to be taken. And sometimes we think that that's not the case. It's like, Lord, I should have this, or Lord, I shouldn't have that. And so it becomes a a way that we can look at it and try and judge it for ourselves. And this young man was saying he thought he needed to do something other than, look, ask anything of me. I'll be faithful, I won't commit adultery the rest of my life, but don't take my stuff, is basically what he's saying. I'm going to do all these other things as they relate to people, but that I won't do. That can't ever be the case with us if we want Jesus. There can't be anything in your life that's going to compete with Jesus as Lord. There can't be anything, including wealth, Riches, money, power, passion, possessions, throw whatever you want in there because the Bible, when it says riches, is not actually determined by something that we would call currency. It's not cryptocurrency. It's not bills in your wallet. Nobody carries those anymore. It's not an account where you have money stored up for later. Literally, Jesus is saying, all this stuff that you think you possess, don't let it possess you. 
It can ruin you. It can keep you from me. And so the Lord checks his motivation. Says, you think you're good enough? Well, you only passed five of the Ten Commandments, and that's by your own testimony is basically what he's saying. What about the other five? Apparently, because you're sorrowful, you're not going to do so good on that account. What, what do you need to do? Well, you need to be willing to give up everything. And so Jesus questions his motivation here. He says, look, here's what I want you to do. This is how you can know you're okay. Take what was a God to you and get rid of it. Give it away. Because it's not worth keeping it if it's going to keep you from me. And church, that becomes the issue for all of us. And you're probably saying, well, I'd like to have enough money to have to make that decision. Some of you are probably saying that this morning. Some of you are saying, well, I kind of know how he feels. I have more than I need, and sometimes I feel guilty about it. And probably everything in between. But it's not the two extremes, and it's not the in-between. It's, is Jesus able to ask of you anything and you say, yes, Lord, your servant hears? Are, are you willing to surrender to the king for his glory anything, everything? That's what Jesus was getting at. That's why he uses this idiom that they would have all completely understood. They weren't worried about it being impossible. They understood that it could be done. They just understood that it would be really hard. It could take time. It could take work, effort. It could mean that you have to get rid of some stuff. You see, Jesus was saying, look, there there can't be any other gods. Why don't you read the first five of those Ten Commandments and then get back to me on that? Is really what Jesus is getting at. Basically, he's saying, Well, you're still not okay because you're dependent on yourself. And the reason that he gave him this task of putting his money where his mouth is, is that's how we prove who we are in Christ. It doesn't mean you're saved because you gave away everything, and it doesn't mean that you're saved because you have everything and you use it for the glory of the king. It simply means if you truly believe what the Bible says, then you're willing to do what it says. That admonition that James gives us, be ye therefore doers of the word, not a hearer only, deceiving yourself. Because people can know what the Bible says and they can still refuse to do it. That should be scary for us. That should cause you to say, Lord, what's wrong with me? Not what's wrong with my friends. Not what's wrong with my family. Not what's wrong with my government. Not what's wrong with my community. What is wrong with me, Lord, that that isn't touching my heart in such a way I'm willing to do it? We should be willing to do anything Jesus asks us to do. And here's the awesome thing. He's not going to ask you to do something that isn't for your best and his glory. He's not going to say, well, just get rid of everything so that you can wander around poverty stricken if that's not for you. Some people probably need that, to be quite honest. They've gone so far down that road that some years in poverty would give them a heart of compassion towards other people. Your pastor is one of those people, by the way. When I was in business, I was a millionaire before I was 30 years old. I had no compassion for people. 
None. Stuff was my God. Money, property, power. Planes, boats, cars, you name it. And God took every bit of it. You know, I learned a lot cleaning toilets as a janitor about Jesus. Jeff, what are you going to keep? Lord, take it all if that's what you need. Take it all. And he's been so faithful to restore little by little and put us into a place to where, what did we give up? Nothing. Wouldn't trade one second of it for what we currently have. Couldn't care less. Greatest day of my life might have been the day that our corporations declared bankruptcy. Probably the greatest day of my spiritual life, if you want to look at it that way. Okay, God, I'm all in. I'm not going to play around anymore. I know you saved me when I was 13. I'm going to prove it. That's okay, you take it. Don't let anything keep you from Jesus. If it is, get rid of it. And if you can use it for his glory, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's really about will you just bend your knee? Will you allow God to strip off enough of the rope of your life that you can go through the eye that he's created for you? That's all he's after. Will you unpack your camel? Will you allow the Lord to take whatever he wants to take and give whatever he wants to give? Will you learn, as the Apostle Paul said, to be content in all things? Whether you're blessed or broke. Don't let anything, and I mean anything, you know, sometimes we look at this and we just confine it to, to wealth, money, possessions. But I've seen a lot of people who are unwilling to give up their fame. Some people, it's their intellect, their education, their stoicism. For some people, they're so convinced that poverty is the way that they're unwilling to let God bless them. It's like, nope. I've actually had some fairly deep conversations with people that absolutely insist that the Bible says that we need to be destitute in order to understand Christ. It's not true. It's not true. How about your self-reliance? How about your self-reliance? Just general not need for what only Jesus can do for you. Church, it is hard for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But it's not impossible. It all depends on you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Maybe your camel needs some shaving. If you do, the prayer room is going to be available after service. Maybe you've never met Jesus. 
Today's the day. Say yes, Lord. For the rest of us, let's not let anything keep us from what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Amen? Father, thank you. Lord, I just thank you for this amazing church. These beautiful people that are a source of encouragement to me. Pray that you would bless each one of them. Lord, I want to pray for anybody that's struggling right now with lack. Lord, their, their life is in turmoil because they simply don't have what they have need of. And Lord, you're working on that. And right now they're afflicted in their heart or their mind and maybe they think wrongly about you because of a God of mercy and grace. Would you pour out blessings upon them? And Lord, for those that have much, Lord, maybe they're just resting in that abundance. I pray that they'd keep a loose grip on the things that they have, that they would learn to be generous, conscientious towards others' needs. Lord, release them from the bondage of wealth. Set them free to be used for your glory. And Lord, everything in between. Lord, most of us probably live between those two places. Pray that you would use all that we have and all that we are for your glory. Don't let anything keep us from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.